Hey everyone, this is Deacon Jim from Forefront Church, proud to present to you this conversation with Chelsea Horvath-Black, the Senior Director of Program Services at City Relief, an organization that seeks to connect people who are hurting and homeless to resources they need to survive and the hope they need to try. This was a very important conversation to have, especially in this time and place in New York City, where the homeless and unhoused population is increasing, um, and yet we have an administration uh, which is dealing with it in controversial and hurtful ways, seeking to kind of push the problem away or cover it up instead of actually deal with it and help these people to heal. This conversation is an important reminder that the homeless and unhoused are not a monolithic demographic, all of whom have done the same things to get them to where they are. This is a reminder that there are a number of factors, including financial, uh, governmental, even mental and physical health factors that have gotten some people to where they are, and that there are a number of societal factors that perpetuate this idea or this circumstance of being homeless and being unhoused, including such as administrations which have constantly fluctuating um, priorities and focuses that really kind of overlook and, and simplify the problem and don't really treat it from where it comes from. Chelsea and the people at City Relief are truly those people that embody um, what Christ said when he said, please take care of the least of these. It's a wonderful conversation, an edifying conversation, and I think one that is ultimately hopeful in how it helps shape our approach to this problem and how it humanizes people that larger society have often sought to dehumanize. Chelsea Horvath Black, thank you so much for having a conversation with me today. And before we kind of get into the larger topics, the much larger relevant topics at hand, I wanted to kind of start with you first and City Relief. Um, if no one has heard of this organization before, I wonder if you could just start with kind of detailing what City Relief ultimately does, what is their mission, and specifically kind of what your role is there and just kind of any details, how long you've been there, what you oversee, anything at all, basically. Yeah. Um, so City Relief is kind of un a unique organization in that we're, we're mobile. Um, so we are kind of an, an equivalent of a mobile care unit. We reach people who are on the streets, mostly the street homeless population, but we also work with people who are experiencing homelessness in, in various forms or are um, at risk of homelessness. Um, so also, you know, people who are living in poverty in New York City and in New Jersey, we go to the people. So we have eight locations in New York and New Jersey um, where we set up uh, what we call uh, the relief bus. So you might have seen us on the street. It's a big white school bus um, with our logo on the side. And we um, park at the same place, same time every single week in eight different locations over the course of four days. Um, and we pass out um, some essential items. And those essential items sometimes are is, is all we do with connecting with people. Um, other times those essential items become uh, a conduit for a much larger conversation. And we um, end up having one-on-one -on -one kind of case management with individuals um, and then the potential for ongoing case management and and um, and care uh, if somebody's looking for it. So we kind of come in, we're really good at doing the crisis, uh, like in, in intervening where there's crisis, um, which is why we you know are, are on the streets um, and whatever happens on the street, whatever people are facing, we're right there. Um, but then we also have, you know, the the uh, capacity to work with people more long term if that's what they're open to. Could you also tell me 
a little bit about your journey and what got you into this. I know you are a licensed clinical social worker and homelessness is kind of a topic that many people are like, yes, this is very important. It has to be dealt with, but yeah. there's a little, but there's a little bit of like, oh, well, not in my backyard thing. I'm not going to be the one to do this. Um, so I, I mean, just kind of what led you ultimately onto this path and like, and dedicating your life and your work to this sort of uh, topic. Yeah. So um, kind of going backwards. So currently I am the director, uh, the senior director of program services at City Relief, which is kind of looking at like the kind of larger scope of our services and kind of the organizational management of our services. Um, I didn't become a social worker until I started working with individuals experiencing homelessness in New York City um, and particularly became interested in organizational management. Um, and, uh, and so just kind of backing up then my story started at a church, um, All Angels Church on the Upper West Side, um, where I was attending for about gosh, for about eight months before I started working there as the director of community ministries. I had worked with um, the homeless population in China very briefly as a volunteer um, with a friend who ran a drop-in center there. And I'm an artist by trade and I was working teaching what we called creative expression lessons. Um, so it was, you know, people who were in the residential program at the drop-in center, it was kind of like their therapy each week. And I really loved it. So when I was looking for a church in New York City, um, I heard about All Angels. Um, I went to their evening service, which at that point was about like 85% of the people who attended the evening service were experiencing homelessness or recovering from homelessness. Um and it just felt so natural. I was like, oh, yes, this is this is my world. This is my zone. Um, I started to attend kind of what was the equivalent of like a house church or a small group, cell group, whatever you would call it in your church. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it was all, you know, individuals who were kind of going through some kind of recovery. Um, a lot of people recovering from homelessness, but then also potentially drug or alcohol addiction as well. Um, or various other addictions. And that was my house church. And, you know, and it was very creative. We were doing a lot of creative work together, um, poetry, writing, uh, spoken word, visual arts. And that was part of the way that we connected as a community. And so I just felt really, I felt really connected um, to everyone in that space because we were just, we were journeying through life together. Like it, it really didn't matter uh, what your housing status was. And for me being new in New York City, you know, I didn't know about, oh my goodness, the the just the massive, you know, industry and structure <laughs> that is <laughs> homelessness in New York mm -hmm. City. I didn't know that then, you know, I was coming from um, a city in a country that like homelessness was kind of like a, you know, you don't talk about it kind of thing. There weren't services. Yeah. Um, it mm -hmm. was just, you know, some of us doing good. So, um, so I think that once I, once there was an opening for the, that, that position at that time um, to run the homeless ministry, it really was just about me being, you know, kind of utilizing my gifts and my skills and my, my history and ministry um, to, to care for the people that I already was connected to and loved, right? Mm -hmm. Like they, they were my people, they were my family. And so it felt less of a job, less like a job and more of just like, oh, this is what I'm going to be doing in New York city, right? Like I'm going <laughs> to be, I'm going to be helping this small church um, to better care for 
the, the members of our church who are homeless, right? Um, who have a very particular need. Now, as I went through that, I was there for six years and every, every year I got more and more interested in just, you know, how homelessness, the, the presence of homelessness in New York City and learning about all of the different things that people were dealing with, um, that it was, it was more than just, you know, creating a safe space for them to stay um, in a church bed, it was, it was about, well, you know, where is this coming from? What's at the root of the problem? And how do we get ahead of the problem instead of just constantly responding, you know, kind of retroactively to, um, to the changing dynamics of the city and how that impacts the people I love? It's like, well, how do I get ahead of that, right? How do I understand what's happening here so that I can meet you where you're at? So, um, that's where I, when I went to grad school and then uh, eventually ended up moving over to city relief a year ago um, who were, they were already friends of mine and we were working together, but kind of shifted focus um, less out of the small church space and more into kind of the broader conversation of homelessness. Mm -hmm. That was, that was a, certainly a wide uh, ranging answer, but I, the thing that I took away from it mostly was this phrase that you use that I love, like recovering from homelessness, because it, it depicts it as a situation which is temporary, which can be treated. And yet, even today, largely in the media, you can blame it on so many other things, but it is kind of um, painted or displayed or broadcast as sort of a situation which people are kind of, they get into, they're in it permanently. This is always going to be a person or a population that we will have to deal with rather than treat or or heal or or progress necessarily. Um, yeah. And even even me, like I live in New York now, but I grew up in the, in the New Jersey suburbs. So coming into New York City was like a real kind of treat. And the attitude there from my parents, from many others were like, when you saw homeless people was like, don't give them any money. They're going to use it for drugs or booze or something. But mm -hmm. in your work, I'm wondering if you can kind of um, start breaking that down here as though you haven't already been doing this, but at least for the purpose of this conversation, start breaking down that myth and just kind of talk about the kind of people you see in a day in day out base and sort of who are they? What gets them to this point and what is kind of perpetuating that and like kind of keeping them in this situation? Yeah, you know, I, I appreciate the question because I think that um, we often think of like, you know, I mean, just like with anything, when you categorize a person, it like you kind of flatten um, the, the, how dynamic, you know, the, the community of people is, right? So like, if you're homeless, you're not just one way, it wasn't just one thing that got you here. You're not, you know, there's so many different types of people from all different walks of life end up finding themselves homeless. Um, mm. And in New York City in particular, you know, what, what we see working in city relief, um, you see individuals, you know, there's families, right? There are families like, I don't know the statistics anymore. They're constantly changing, but, you know, homeless children, I mean, there's like at least 10,000 homeless children in New York City. Like it's a crazy number of, of children who are experiencing homelessness. Um, so there's families with young children, there's adult families, there's adults, um, you know, single adults. Um, of those single adults, a lot of times you see what, who you see on the streets tends to be single adults, mm -hmm. um, single adults, you know, who are experiencing uh, some kind of drug addiction, um, sometimes uh, severe mental illness, um, sometimes uh, victims of domestic violence. Um, 
other times, uh, you, you know, you might have a youth on the verge of adulthood um, who is a runaway from home, um, from other states and kind of trying to find refuge in New York City. Um, you also have, you know, a, a, a lot of, I mean, gosh, there's so many, there's some people that I would meet who came from out of state who couldn't find work and thought that they could come to New York to find work and then mm -hmm. found, oh, it's not so easy. Or even if I did find work, well, you know, the cost of living is so high that sure. now I'm on the street, right? Or they were already homeless and their cities or states didn't really offer any supports. And so they knew at least if I go to New York City, they're going to care for me a little bit more. There's more, you know, to access there. Um, you also have people who are recently released from jail or prison. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of people, especially, you know, now you've got like people being released from Rikers, like very, you know, a, a lot more rapidly than before. Um, but where are all those people going, right? Um, mm -hmm. Especially if you're not trying to reconnect with the community that you were part of that, you know, when you got into trouble in the first place, right? Um, so there's just such a wide variety. You've got people who are highly educated on the streets um, and some people who, you know, didn't get through, um, didn't get through the schooling system. Um, you've got some people who have always been part of the system from foster care on, um, who are just used to living in the system, foster care to, you know, to prison, um, to the shelter system, and then back to prison, back to the shelter system, right? Like just your, that's your life living in the system. And then other people who literally will, would say out loud to me, you know, I don't belong here. Like this isn't supposed to be for me. I'm not supposed to be here. I'm not supposed to be homeless. Like, um, so that is a, a broad scope, but that's who you're talking about, right? Yeah, it's because it's important to remember that it, they, they are not a monolithic demographic because certainly, uh, especially really since the pandemic, that's kind of the message that we've been hammered with is that, um, yes, there are a lot of homeless out there. Most of them are dangerous. And that is what is kind of um, contributing to a rise in crime and, and, it, and it being dangerous to kind of ride on the subway and this sort of a thing. Um, and so that, that's that's an important thing to remember is that there are many different factors that contribute to this, many different kinds of people. And it this this may be a strange question. I don't even know if you'll have a guess on this, but you you guys are sort of mobile, and so you have different locations. What would you say is kind of a um, if you could estimate sort of the percentage uh, of the population out there which comes to you for help versus the others that are just kind of out there who are. Mm. not coming to you for help or not aware of it uh it just kind of like you know if you if you look at mm. the the homelessness crisis as sort of like an iceberg like if yeah. you were at the tip like what's underneath the water still that's a really good question um i don't know a percent i think that it's a hard question because maybe let's say one day we go out i'm taking a kind of a case study from a, a new outreach that we have on the lower east side and um you know, part of why we 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 really prioritize being consistent and being at the same place at the same time every single week is because us just being there um, and being consistent over time, mm -hmm. people will start to come to us, right? Sure. Yeah. So you always kind of have this like um, trend where you have a new location and you get this this like uh spike in attendance you know people like tons of people come because they're curious about what's going on mm. but then when it really meets like when when you realize like oh well 
they really want to talk to me about some real stuff. Right. (laughs) And then sometimes it's like, yes, I'm, it's easy. I'm ready. But like, to be honest, there's a lot of people, I would say like a, the, the majority of people um, that I've worked with who are kind of chronically street homeless, we'll say, and that's a lot of the people that we see um, is chronically street homeless. Um, There's, there are reasons why they're resistant to help. Right. Um, And part of it's the solutions aren't, aren't, desirable or there's a lot of trauma that then you have to relive or go through um to kind of you know to to you know to work your way to recovery or work your way into being stably housed you kind of have to unearth and talk about some really hard things that sometimes it's easier just to self-medicate or to mm-hmm. avoid those conversations right like there's a lot that you might have to go through in order to like really get long-term assistance from us and to, and to get your needs met. Um, so I would say it's a good question about the iceberg. I'm totally blind guessing this. Um, but I would say the people who just come to us without reservation compared to the amount of people that are actually out there that need assistance is, you know, maybe about 15% (laughs) right off the bat. But then again, over time, as you build trust with people and they see you and they know what you're about and they have conversations with you that you build the rapport, they know that you know what you're talking about and have resources and all that, then that, that percentage expands over time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, you know, how much of that, and this is just a rhetorical question, but how much of that population too are people who are mentally unwell, who may not be aware uh, or or have the agency to kind of seek that out. And um, you mentioned this word resources, you guys are resources. There are obviously groups out there who are like you, but can you speak a little bit to this systemically on a government level, just sort of a lack of support for people like this, specifically when it comes to uh, mental health services? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that we do when you ask what our, our mission is, is like we, we're connecting, we're, we're connectors. So we connect people to resources is one of our greatest strengths and then also connect people to community and relationship and, um, and, and eventually connect people to hope and the resources there's actually, there are so many resources out there, but it's almost kind of like, it's almost too many and they're not connected to each other. Right. right? Mm -hmm. So navigating those resources is really complicated. You've got private resources, you've got public resources, you've got, you've got like faith-based resources. You've got, you know, you've, they're just all across the map and, um, and they're not, they're not uh, strategically working together um, so even one thing that you often find is that somebody come, you know, a person might go to multiple organizations and have to say the same thing over and over again about what their situation is. Mm-hmm. And they're only getting a, like a tiny sliver of what they need from each place. And that's just exhausting. I mean, and you're doing this all on foot or you're doing it with limited ability to self-advocate or whatever it might be. Um, so there are a lot of resources out there, but I think one of the one of my biggest critiques even of like how we navigate homelessness 
as a city is that, you know, you even just see, what was it yesterday that I just read, or maybe it was even this morning that like the governor just said that he's about to spend um, just a crazy amount of money. <laughs> I should look at the, in the New York times article. It was, it was, you know, just a crazy amount of money. It was like to, on top of what de Blasio had already put into, um, you know, homeless resources. Mm-hmm. But my critique is that like, we don't, you don't actually see where that money is going and right. it's not well stewarded. Right. So there are a lot of resources, both financial and, you know, in, in um, just knowledge and, and, you know, human care and all of that. And that, that just aren't well connected and, um, there's a lot of red tape around them and, you know, the money is just kind of, it's, it's disappearing. You don't even know where it's going. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. So I, I, I would say like a, yeah, we have a lot of resources and so we just don't, we don't utilize them well. Right. And, and you mentioned Mayor Adams and uh, do I have opinions on him? Oh boy, I do. Uh, we, we, you know, we, we can certainly <laughs> talk a little bit about that, but I, I, I even want to just kind of step back um, in history uh, even just if you could talk a little bit about not necessarily specifics uh, of mayors and what they've come in and what they've done, but even just maybe the challenges that that you or your organization or other organizations have faced when it's like every, you know, seemingly every few years, there's another person that comes in and wants to change things or right. wants to implement them thing or uh, their uh, kind of their institution. Do you find that to be challenging in the sense of you guys can't gain any traction or are, are you are, are you largely kind of still just soldiering on and some things may affect you may not? How does that work? Yeah. You know, you know, it's interesting because it's like sometimes the policies that are created, like you don't really feel the effects of them until like for I mean, sorry, uh, until like like decades later or, sure, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. like um, like maybe it's like four administrations passed and then you're like, oh, shoot, that thing that. Mm-hmm. so-and-so signed back then now we're feeling the effects of it so one of those things you know is even just you you may or may not know new york city has um the legal right to shelter which was implemented in the 80s and at first it was you know just for men right it was like you know any male has the right to shelter and that's because there were so many men on the streets in the late 70s and early 80s and so there's this legal right to shelter now the issue is that there's not a legal right to housing but there's a right to shelter and so again mm. you put so many resources into shelter and so you're you build more and more shelters but they're not necessarily you're not thinking about like recovery well i know that they they say they do but we obviously don't see this working very well where there's you know recovery resources and wraparound resources and even the people that we meet right now it's like you know they go to the shelter but they don't even they meet with a case manager maybe once you know or twice and they don't have case ongoing case management or even now you have, you know, you, you might have policies where you have these vouchers or, you know, Section 8 housing or, you know, opportunities to get you housing. Um, but there's, you know, maybe like one housing specialist per every 100 shelter residents. So well, how is one person supposed to help all those people find housing in a market where there's not a whole lot of affordable mm-hmm. housing to begin with, right? Yeah. So you see like over time, 
like great that you develop that voucher program, but nobody has developed really invested in affordable housing. So you've got this wonderful policy that gets people's hopes up to say, hey, I finally got this voucher and I went through the whole system, the whole shelter system and everything I had to do. I, I played the game to get this voucher. I got it. Can you help me find an apartment? And well, well, now you're out of luck, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, you know, because that's not our department. Yeah. You know, you don't have the right to get the house. You have the right to get the shelter. And then there's this other policy that will help you get the voucher. But mm -hmm. navigating the market is a whole other story. Right. So I think you see over time, like each each administration kind of like like you said, putting their stamp on things. But it's not just like the resources. There's so many, but they're not they're not strategically connected. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I think that that's where you see problems, even then, who was it like under Giuliani, that's when you start the, the mindset of like, well, you know, you want to kind of have a, like a, a, a mutual relationship where we will give you the government or the city, you know, government will give you some kind of aid or resource, but then you need to give back. And that's where a lot of like work programs come in, or, you know, like there's, there's like a, in order to get housing, you have to en enroll in a program. And there's certain things that you need to be doing in order to get what we're giving. And so that's a good idea in theory. But again, like, if that's only really emphasized in one administration, and it's not carried forward, sure. then you, you're not developing it well enough for it to be effective. Mm -hmm. and, so. and so on that note, have there been, um, I don't want to say administrations, but have there been laws or programs or things that have been enacted in the past that have been helpful that have been dropped that you'd like to see the city get back to things that you know could have uh, hey th these these could have been helpful if just the next guy who came in didn't ditch them in favor of something else well i'll say i mean one thing that's just like really recent and that a lot of us you know have some kind of knowledge about is the moving uh, shelter guests into the hotels for during COVID. that's like mm -hmm. a great example right sure. where that was kind of like a temporary fix but it was something you know in response to a public health crisis that actually ended up having really positive effect on a lot of the the people who were living in shelters at that time, or people who were refusing shelter and living on the streets, mm. um, to have uh, your own room, right? Um, while you're like, while you're trying to get out of homelessness, uh, makes such a difference. Um, living in a congregate setting with that are like most shelters that are so large, um, for many reasons that you know, we could talk about or not like just doesn't it's not advantageous, it doesn't work for people. Um, and so to to kind of allow for people to live in space where they can recalibrate and you know have that that personal space and like really have a more dignified life um, while they're in shelter actually has had really positive effect on people. I know like many people personally who even went into the shelter system during that time um, because they knew they would be having their own space and now actually have their own apartments. Like they live on their own. Um, and this was people that for years we were trying to get into the shelter system and they just wouldn't do it. And now, you know, that's been removed. Like that's not, you know, because there's not that same public health risk for COVID, yeah. um, even though homelessness is in and of itself a public health risk, like 
it's it's no longer in place. So that's a good example of something that you know you see you see happen, you see the positive effects of it, but it's not a long term commitment or long term um, promise and and you know policy created so that it's disappeared. It's interesting to hear you say that because I I can attest just as a a, uh, a voracious news consumer that a lot of the coverage of that seemed to be more focusing on the people who were in the neighborhoods who were complaining about this as a situation. Like, well, yeah, I guess in theory, this is a good practice. But as I said earlier, like the not in my backyard kind of thing, like they want it to be a solution, but they don't want to they don't want it to happen down the street for them. So it's actually interesting to hear like, yeah, this has a positive outcome because that's not the story that that was largely being told. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I and, you know, that really just goes to like who has voice in the city. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so who has voice is the one who's telling the story. Um, and I totally understand, you know, the, the like a lot of the focus was on three shelters in particular on the Upper West Side that were literally just down the street from where I was working at that time, um, the church I was working at. And um, and so like I, I saw the effects of it in the neighborhood and, you know, I was like, maybe in the beginning it, it was there were a lot of people loitering and hanging out that you weren't used to and stuff and you know it's it's not the upper west side vibe and so i get it but i think there was so much fear created out of that that it, it i mean it was like shut down immediately almost immediately the shelters were still there but the loitering wasn't and mm-hmm. yet still the shelters weren't allowed to exist because you know that narrative was still there and we're still gonna we're still gonna fight it until it's completely obliterated um whereas you know people were like oh is upper west side crazy right now and i was like not really <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah. like mm-hmm. i was there every day during the pandemic and it it you know it died down very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think a lot of it is just who has the voice at that time. And could you talk a little bit about too, about how how the COVID pandemic exacerbated the this homeless problem, whether it came to um, attention on it or how it was, or, or, or how people were responded to or not responded to. Can you um, shed a little bit of light on, on that? Yeah. So, um, you know, some of the obvious stuff is, you know, even just people losing their jobs and, mm-hmm. and you know, the um, eviction, you know, I know that the, we had the, we had, you know, policies and, and things put into place and, um, and relief packages and things that would help people to stay in their apartments, but there's still people who were losing their homes and people even now who are still concerned about it. But I was looking at something um, the, recently that the Coalition for the Homeless put out and it was just kind of a like a record of, uh, you know, stats over the course of 2021, you know, and, and uh, with homelessness. And one in particular was looking at uh, death rates since 2012 of homeless individuals and cause of death. And um, you could see a total spike the last two years, like a a significant spike in deaths and um, drug use was a huge increase. Mm -hmm. And so you even, you think about like, you know, the mental health crisis in general um, that we're all experiencing and, um, and, you know, some people, you know, who I, I consider addiction, a, you know, part of a mental health issue um, in and of itself. You know, you have people who were already who were in recovery, or you know, were not using. You know, were were kind of had their addiction um, under control, um, 
and then, you know, things happen, isolation, you know, uh, stress, anxiety, and then, you know, an, an, a serious increase uh, of drug use again, um, or introducing that into people's lives who, who were not currently, or who weren't using before. Um, so you've got the drug use increase, and you've also got people who were medicated uh, with their mental health issues, who no longer had access to their doctors or everything was telehealth and maybe they didn't have access to, you know, technology or it's just, you know, a whole lot easier not to see your psychiatrist and not to get yep. the therapy that you need, not to whatever. And so you had people who were being treated for mental health issues that were no longer being treated or uh, were no longer medicated. Um, so you've got that kind of added to the to the situation. And some of those people end up using drugs, self-medicating, and other people just end up not, you know, not being medicated at all. Um, and then you've got uh, individuals who were somewhat stable, but then you know, again, the stress and anxiety and everything compounding the loneliness and, you know, what mental health issues did that trigger within people that, you know, were manageable and under control, but no longer could be in control. And so then you see all three of those existing on the streets, like mm -hmm. so much more, so much more. And I mean, I know, like, probably you and I probably struggled with our mental health in some way or another over the course of the pandemic. And think about somebody whose housing or whose life is, is, is not as stable as ours um, and the effect that that would have on that individual. So a lot of that violence and everything that we're seeing out on the streets now, um, I mean, it is a legitimate concern because you see the numbers, you know, of, of people who are even, you know, dying from, from that um, who are homeless. And so we do see that that is an increase, um, but a lot of it is in direct you know, relationship to the effects of the pandemic and the mental health effects of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And that leads us into kind of now, uh, which is the the mayor, Eric Adams administration and his um, election being largely kind of coming on the wave of uh, a lot of problems came up during the pandemic and I'm going to be the one to fix them. And his yeah. response his response to a lot of things seems to be the the presence of more police and of more funding to um, a an already highly militarized kind of police state. I mean, I think I think the status New York has, if it was a a national army, would be like the eleventh largest army in the entire world. That's besides yeah. the fact. But I, I'm I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about. I mean, forefront is a. We do not shy away from being a political church. We believe that Jesus was a political figure. So politics are certainly involved in this problem and how to combat it. Yeah. And just speak a little bit about it. I mean, if you have opinions on this administration's response to it and the problems that you may have with mm -hmm. it. Yeah. I So I personally, like, I completely understand the... Like I, no one wants the violence on the streets, yeah. right? Like mm -hmm. it's, it, no one wants that. And you, you do need, we do need to be able to control the, the violence in some way or another, right? Like, or positively have a positive impact like mm -hmm. on, on the safety of, of the streets, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, someone I was talking to actually at one of our outreaches the other day, I was asking him, we're um, on uh, the Lower East Side at SDR Park right now. And, um, we are we had already chosen that spot before um 
you know, before the the stabbing that happened of the young woman in her apartment, um, before uh, a, a lot of the increase of drug use and violence in the area, um, we had chosen that spot to be in. And, um, and so since we've been there, there's been an increase of police presence um, and there are fewer people hanging out in the park, right? Yeah. And so I was asking somebody who hangs out there, um, I just wanted to hear like really frankly from him, like what what does our presence feel like to you guys? And like, what's what's the what's the feeling here right now? There's an increased police presence, we're here and now there's not as many people hanging out. Like, mm-hmm. so is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? You know, and again, this is just one person's um, response, but he, you know, he was like, no, this is, this is actually good because there are, there's, there's like less concentrated evil, right? Like <laughs> um, the, the serious drug use and, you know, the people who for better or for worse, were just kind of, um, who were very comfortable and safe for the or not safe necessarily but comfortable in that space of you know being being like this is this is our our world our zone where we can sleep we can live we can do what we need to do and not be bothered by anybody but there also is then a concentration of darkness right Mm. in that space um and so then the police come in and we come in and what is that you know that disrupts that um And so from his perspective, he was saying, you know, it's actually good. Like there's more peace here now. Like people do feel safer. People can come to this space to get the help that they need. Um, And at the same time, where do all, where does everybody go? Right. Everyone who was there before. So it's kind of like a similar, a similar feeling to like gentrification, right. Where it's like, yeah, now it's a little bit nicer. It's cleaner. It's a little bit safer, but now where are you pushing everybody out to? Mm -hmm. And so then, you know, he tied that to what Eric Adams is doing. um, Or at least at at that first push of, you know, removing the encampments and, you know, it's like, okay, well, so yeah, like there's, we understand why those encampments are a threat, you know, and why they're, they're, they're unhealthy and it is a public health issue. And, um, they're, you know, that this, it is inhumane. People need better spaces to live and all of that, but there's a reason why they're there. Right. Mm -hmm. And those are still their belongings. And, um, those are still, you know, in those bags that you trashed, like, it's probably like, like they're all of their personal paperwork and their social security card and all this stuff that you're not even thinking because you have yours in some safe in the back of your closet, but like, this is their safe in the back of the closet, right? Mm -hmm. Like is, is underneath this mattress or whatever it might be that looks like trash, but it actually is people's important belongings. And so, you know, again, it's like you understand the desire and the need to clean up, but then where are you pushing everybody and how are you, how are you, what is the effect on the people that you're pushing out? Um, but I, I do also think that it's kind of like an, a, just a really rushed effort to make a mark, right? Sure. Where, you know, and I think that's kind of to your question earlier about different mayors having different initiatives or policies and a lot of them, like they, they might be decent in and of themselves, but then you kind of like, in this case, it's like, you're like rushing it and forcing people. 
It's like you're trying to force people into the shelter, force people to get their act together, force people, you know, under under the guise of, you know, being humane, like you're and and being safe, like you're forcing people into a system that they've already rejected yeah. and you haven't come up with a better solution. And the fact that you're you're you know, you might talk about, yeah, well, we're going to have better solutions. We're going to have smaller shelters and more beds and all, and we're going to put all this money into it. Well, if it was that easy to do it that quickly, we, you know, every mayor would have done it already, right? <laughs> um, we would have figured this out already. So it just, it feels very rushed and, you know, wanting to kind of start your administration off on a good foot and show everybody, yes, I'm going to deal with this issue but I don't think that it's going to have positive long-term effects. I think it's going to be like, a, like, you know, de Blasio said the same thing for his two terms. He was like, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to fix this, put so much money into the system. We have more people in shelters and homeless now than we did before his, when he first started. Mm-hmm. So like, it, it's just not what, I don't think it's a well thought out plan. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's uh, negatively impacting the individuals who are living in those spaces, um, whether it be the trains or the encampments. So. Mm-hmm. And you hit upon this a little bit earlier, but this is a, a good a good segue into the next question of just this idea of shelters, because the layperson may hear that and be like, oh, so there already are systems in place. There are shelters, and that is a comforting word. There are places for these people to go. And yet it is, as you have mentioned, as other people have mentioned, that even even um, homeless and unhoused people have been interviewed on the news that they don't want to go to shelters, that the shelters are actually a worse alternative than the than encampments that they already have. So could you explain to people a little bit about why that is? What is it? What is it about shelters that on the surface sound like a good idea, but are actually can be a worse situation for people? Yeah. So the shelters, I mean, to be honest, they operate like the con- the large congregate shelters operate a lot like, you know, the the jail would operate and you know we've heard so much trouble about Rikers and it's kind of like a similar <laughs> similar mm-hmm. situation in a lot of these shelters yeah. um, where you've got a whole lot of people like side by side in one space um, those individuals could be you know suffering from mental illness individuals could be um, you know uh, have gang relation uh, drug use um a whole host of things right and that's not everybody but you've got people who like you know might be very very innocent and just kind of needing a bed and they're placed in that space um and it's it's not safe because they're an easy target they're the easy like people get robbed people get beat up um people get brought into i just someone was just telling me yesterday or maybe it was even this morning about someone who you know is now kind of getting caught up in a drug ring you know being in the shelter um Mm -hmm. people who are trying to uh recover and not use and then they're right in this environment where people are using and they're dealing and they're you know like the drug use is just right there in your face um so they're just they're they're not uh, safe spaces at all. Um, but then there's also the restrictiveness of it, right? Like there's a curfew and, um, you have to be in and out by a certain time every day makes it really difficult if you're working, especially a lot of the people who are working in, or who are living in shelters, you know, have shift jobs. And a lot of times people have the night shift where you can't go to work if you have a curfew. And if, and sometimes you can get a, um, 
like an exception, but you need your employer to like write a letter or like, you know, let the shelter know that you're going to be working. Well, who wants to tell their employer that they're homeless? And a lot of times Mm -hmm. there's, you know, there's, there's a backfire to that, even though you shouldn't be, there shouldn't be discrimination. There's discrimination, right? Um, There's, you know, you, you can't bring in certain things. um, A lot of personal items that like are comfort items for people you're not allowed to bring in. So you just end up being that person with just a backpack and that's it. Um, Bed bugs, rats, you know, all the stuff. So I think for someone who, and for a lot of people who are already experiencing a lot of trauma because of being on the streets and because of whatever it is that caused them to be on the streets, um, it's really no place. I mean, you're not going to be put in a good headspace at all, um, by staying at the shelter. Um, there are then, you know, there used to be something called the emergency shelter network that since the pandemic, I don't know, it, it wasn't operating for a while, um, during the pandemic, but that's like shelter, uh, beds in houses of worship. Um, And that was connected through drop-in programs. And a lot of people preferred that because then it's a much smaller, it's like, you know, maybe 14 people and you're in a church and it's staffed by volunteers or like clergy or, you know, you know, rabbis and just people who are really lovely because they're there because they want to be there to help you and and to give you a safe space. Right. Um, But that's, that's not currently operating since the pandemic. Um, And those are few and far between. There's also safe havens where you could potentially have your own room or a shared room with just one other person, (laughs) but those are very limited and you need reasonable accommodation to get those beds, meaning you need to be able to prove some kind of disability or, you know, some reason why you can't be in the congregate shelter. Um, And yeah, so, you know, the other shelters that you might hear about tend to be private shelters, which means that you don't have, you can't stay there indefinitely. Um, It's a limited stay, usually to like 21 days or a month at the most. And those shelters are not connected to housing supports. So you're not going to get a housing voucher if you're in a private shelter. Mm -hmm. Um, The only way to get that is through the public shelter. So there's a lot of different types of shelters, but they all have their, their, you know, their downsides to them. Um, and so that, you know, so that you understand if somebody turns down shelter, there's many reasons, but, uh, it, yes, I, I personally would probably turn down shelter. <laughs> <laughs> and I tell people that when they're like, I don't want to go in the shelter. And I say, I totally understand. Mm-hmm. And it's, and, and, and unfortunately, if you're looking for, if what you're looking for is a housing voucher, what you're looking for is X, Y, or Z, the shelter system, you know, through DHS is the only way to get there. Okay. Um, a couple of, a uh, couple of final questions, uh, with kind of an eye of, of, uh, wrapping up the, the time that you've so graciously lended. Um, first one is a little bit of a, um, a heavier one, but the, the final thing I always kind of like to end on an upbeat or, or inspirational or hopeful kind of thing. So the first one, I guess, um, we do have an administration, we've had past administrations, um, that kind of want to, push the population out, kind of erase the image of them on the streets for a larger thing, and just kind of keep, even gentrification is doing this as well, limiting the environment or the areas for people to be. And so with this idea of like pushing people further and further, I mean, what is the ultimate, if you have an opinion or an idea, what is the ultimate end game for that? What can that ultimately result Mm -hmm. in when it just, you keep pushing people out of 
the city or out of their homes or out of their area? Hmm. That's a really good question. I mean, I guess it's like anything that you're in denial about, right? Like the thing doesn't go away. Like even if you just think about, you know, if you've got, if you think about homelessness in terms of like a public health issue, right? Um, If, if you, if you have an issue, a health issue with it, with yourself and you keep putting it, putting off, addressing it, putting it off, putting it off or ignoring that it's there, like it's highly unlikely that. I mean, our bodies are meant to heal it's themselves, right? Like they're powerful things, but you also know that like any, any issue with your body that you keep putting off, it gets bigger and bigger and more and more harmful to your own health. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would say the same thing is true. Like there are a lot of people who are currently experiencing homelessness that can recover on their own, just like your body. Like it's it, like, we are meant, we are made to be resilient people. We are made in the image of God. We are made for more than what, you know, a lot of people are living in. And, and some people can live into that reality, like somehow, somehow, whether it's by their own power or by the grace of God or like some angels coming into their lives and like opening doors, right? Like people can, can get through that on their own, but for the majority of people, that's not the case. And so those issues uh, maybe for them can be deeper and deeper and worse and worse, right? Like you see people even over time, I remember seeing a young man who used to work, he, he, like you knew that he used to make a lot of money by some of the clothes he had, by some of the things that he talked about. So like you, like you just knew that like he had work and he did well for himself. And he came and stayed at our shelter. And over the course of three months, I saw him declining. Like, and after three months, even it was like, he just blend, he blended in with the crowd. Like he mm-hmm. blended in with all the other guys at the shelter and he started getting really depressed. He started using drugs. He was, you know, and, um, and you just see it, like you see the effects on somebody's physical and mental health over time being on the street. Like, you know, I mean, sometimes you see people and they look like they're 80 years old and they're in their fifties. Right. And so there's, there's that side of it that you see the individual um, their well-being, you know, kind of uh, becoming more and more unhealthy. But then that affects all of us as a community. So, um, like you're seeing again, like we've been pushing the problem aside for a while. The numbers are rising. They're not going. No one. It's not getting any better. And so, if you try and look at it like another twenty years down the line from now, if we're not doing anything, like how great the divide between the the wealthy and you know i mean it's like you're like we've been talking about for the whole country like eliminating the middle class right and you start to see that more and more and more and that has a negative effect on our whole community and our society like that it's it's like a cancer that it's not going to go away untreated Mm -hmm. and then the final thing i guess what can people do? I, I, I'm, I'm assuming you wouldn't be continuing in this work if you were just like, well, this is hopeless. There's no, there's no progress being made. What can individuals do? What can organizations do? I mean, I'm doing this podcast on behalf of a church, um, but not everyone that listens goes to that church or necessarily is a church goer. So mm-hmm. what can organizations do? Or even just on an individual level, what can a person do to kind of help with this mission and move it forward? 
Yeah, I honestly, there are some days that I'm like, oh my gosh, are, are we making any difference? And when I went to social work school, those were like the most depressing two years of my life. I was like, <laughs> this is so depressing, right? Because, you know, yeah, it, it can feel so big and so out of our control. And ultimately it is out of our control. And yet we're created to be human beings that are, are producing and are bringing life, right? Like we bring life, we bring light. Um, the salt of the world, right, is what the scriptures say. And so like, for us as individuals and as organizations, I think that it is our call to continually be bringing life into the world. And so for us at City Relief, like, part of that is connecting people to resources. And part of that is like bringing hope and bringing community and and reminding people of who they are. Like, you know, like I said, you know, the, the one young gentleman that I saw become less and less physically healthy and mentally healthy. Um, I, I know that for a lot of people, a lot of friends that I meet on the streets, you know, start to talk about how uh, one guy put it, he said that we start to act like animals. Um, another guy I was talking to last week said that he, you know, he started to feel like a zombie. I've heard people describe themselves like feeling like a piece of trash or like a, a you know, withered, one guy said a, like a withered, uh, leaf just kind of like flying through, you know, mm. flying through the streets. Like you just like to just starting to feel like less and less human essentially is what all those different ways of speaking are. And what, what I think that we do well at city relief and a lot of other organizations do well is like uh, reminding people that they are living beings that are valuable um, to society. Even if, you know, in our, our society's way is, you know, you contribute economically and that, that gives you value. That's not, but that's not what we know is true. Like mm -hmm. we know that you, you are inherently valuable and to speak that truth and to live that truth and to show that truth to people goes a really long way. Um, and so I think that, you know, individuals can do that in their own way, in a way that that makes sense for them, in a way that is true to them. And organizations can do the same thing with the resources that they have. Like, what does it look like to speak life into people and remind them of their value? Um, on a really practical level, I think understanding policy, being connected to your local you know, to, to your local statesman and knowing what's going on and having a voice in that is really important. Knowing how your decisions, your purchasing decisions, your, you know, even where you move and how you exist in your community, um, knowing what's happening in your community and where, how your presence affects, you know, things like this. And um, I think that that, that goes a long way as well, just knowing the cause and effect, right? Like what you're doing, what effect does that have on your community um, in positive and negative ways? And just being a responsible citizen, I think in that way is really important. Well, Chelsea, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation today. And also just, uh, you know, thank you to you and all the folks at City Relief who are um, dedicating really your lives to a, what can I, I'm sure often feel like a, a Sisyphean like um, task basically, uh, but one which is, is very important and very vital for humanizing people that have often been dehumanized. Yes. Thank you for inviting us. And I know it's like such a huge topic. So mm. like, you know, we could talk for days about every single one of your questions, <laughs> but I think um, I appreciated the questions and just that, you know, to, as you said, you know, we all, we're all living around it. Um, and some of us might've been, might think about it more than others. Um, but I do think it's important just to kind of, bring to the conversation um, and as as you put it not just kind of push it to the side 
but just know what the reality of, you know, what our neighbor is experiencing. Um, the more we understand our neighbor's burdens, um, the more we can be present in them.